This is Top Floor, episode 122. You can find the show notes at topfloorpodcast.com forward slash episode forward slash 122. Welcome to Top Floor with Susan Berry. This weekly podcast ride up to the top floor features tangible tips and excellent stories from the experts and characters who elevate hospitality. And now your host and elevator operator, Susan Berry. Welcome to the show, Kelsey Canadler Perry grew up an avid reader and writer. So her MFA in creative writing is completely on brand. After grad school, Kelsey had a six-month grace period before her first student loan payment was due. So she hit the road from small town Wisconsin to Boston, where she worked as a content writer for a luxury bike tour company, among other jobs. Kelsey is now Director of Public Relations at Road Scholar, a not-for-profit travel company for older adults. Today, we are going to talk about lifelong learning and marketing to a demographic into which you do not fit. But before we jump in, we need to answer the call button. The emergency call button is our hotline for hospitality professionals and other people who happen to call in with burning questions. If you would like to submit a question, you can call or text me at 850-404-9630. Today's question was submitted by Rachel. Here's what she says. My boss wants to send out press releases, but doesn't want to pay for a distribution service. What should I do? This is such a hard question, but it comes up all the time. So I'm hoping that you have some thoughts. What do you think, Kelsey? It's so funny because we're kind of having this conversation exactly right now, me and my boss and my team and the distributors that we work with. I I sort of am in the, the frame of mind right now where I'm like, what do press releases really get us? I think that they, they're very expensive and who's reading them? I don't know who's reading them. I know there's SEO value to them. I know that, you know, for some certain news for your company, you just, you have to get it, the news out there and you have to do a press release. But I think they really should be excluded to when you have real news to share, I don't think you should have say like, we need to have like four press releases minimum per year. I think they should be reserved for when you really have important news that you want to share, that you want to get out there. And what I always do as well is I um, send out the press releases in advance to our media contacts. I put together a really strong media list um, to see if we can get some pickup from journalists as well before it hits the wire. And I've been really successful with that and seeing some um, lots of coverage for certain news that we have to share too. So... I think that's the advice I would give, but it's also the advice that no one wants to hear, which is you have to just do some legwork and put together your own list Mm -hmm. and start building your own relationships if you're not going to use a distribution service. And they are expensive, but it is also so much easier than combing through every publication that you're interested in and trying to figure out who to target. So in researching your background, I discovered something that I did not know, which is that you spent some time as a performer and impersonator. Please tell me more. So it's funny that this is where we're starting. (laughs) But um, 
I don't know what this will do for my credibility, but um, I started um, when I moved to Boston to make a little extra money. I was working as a Disney princess. Oh my so gosh. of course we didn't say Disney princess, but um, you know, licensing, but um, I was a princess. And so I would go to birthday parties and I would dress up and I would sing and dance. And I learned how to do balloon animals and face paint. Um, and I did that for three years in my twenties. Um, I have a musical theater background and I'm, a D- Disney adult, I will say. So it was really like a perfect side gig for me. It was something that like growing up, I would have just done for free. I couldn't believe, like it was wild to me that I could get paid to do something like this. And it was just absolutely so much fun. Um, and I just can't believe, like, again, I said, like I said, that somebody paid me to do that. It was so much fun. So were you a particular princess or did you just have to be whichever one the party called for? Well, I did have a beautiful closet of all the gowns, which was amazing, provided by the company. So that what? was just so cool. That is um, cool. But I I started really at the peak of the Frozen Madness. So it was a great time for princess parties, for sure. And so we had a lot of Elsa and Anna. Um, I relate more with Anna, so and my voice fits better with her singing voice. So I preferred to be Anna or Ariel. That was Those were my two favorites. Um, but yeah, I had to do a lot of Elsa. Um, it was mostly Elsa, Anna, Ariel and that we would get like I had I had Sleeping Beauty I had I had pretty much costumes for everybody but um but yeah it would just kind of depended on what people requested so I think that is such a cool job to have had and I mean I hope they paid you well because you have to bring a lot to the table uh balloon animals and singing and dancing my lord yeah, it was pretty good, pretty good side gig money for sure. Um, and, you know, I did have to drive to all, all over New England for these parties and it, they were in people's homes, um, but it was just so much fun. I loved it. So oh, it, it was, cool. yeah. You can always go back to the princess party. <laughs> well, once I turned 30, I was like, I don't think I should be playing a teenage character anymore. That was kind of when I decided I was going to age out of it. <laughs> gotcha. So speaking of jobs and making money, when you decided to get your Master's of Fine Arts, what did you envision your career looking like? Like what was sort of your plan for how you were going to support yourself? And I know that's annoying. My husband has a BFA. Like I get that that's an annoying question, but it is also one that people just want to know the answer to. Yeah. So, I mean, I would say I didn't really have an exact plan, which is unusual for me because I am a big planner. So it was very scary. Um, I was an education major and then I switched to writing in undergrad, um, which was really scary for me because you go from having a very clear career path, going to school for education, becoming a teacher to just going to school for writing. And what does that mean for you? So I think I kind of had in mind that I wanted to do marketing in even in undergrad because I did minor in advertising as well. So I always knew that that was kind of the type of writing that I might enjoy. And I also took um, a magazine writing class in undergrad that I really liked. I interned for a wedding magazine. So I was kind of thinking, you know, I wanted to continue my education mostly because I didn't know exactly what I wanted to do and I loved school. So um, I was just like, let's do two more years. So I thought about journalism school, but I went um, and did, you know, some, I did this little weekend intro thing at a journalism school and I was like, I don't really want to do hard journalism. You know, I wanted to do more like 
lifestyle magazine, human interest piece type stuff. And so that was kind of, I think what I, where I thought I might go with it. Um, but I was really lucky in that when I graduated, um, content writing, you know, marketing content writing was becoming a whole new opportunity for writers. It was something that, you know, now I think people in undergrad are either majoring in or taking classes in content writing and blogging. And that was just really new when I was coming out of school. So I was really lucky and that really opened a lot of doors for me. That's kind of why I asked you that question because students will, you know, feel this sort of sense of panic of like, I don't know what I'm going to do. And I've come around to the idea that the job that someone who is in school right now is ultimately going to do for their career probably doesn't exist yet. And so stop stressing. Just quit worrying mm-hmm. about it. It'll all work yeah. out. Exactly. Just go to school for something you love and that you're passionate about. And also how many people that got their degree in history or writing actually are end up doing that exact same thing. So to me, it's like, you know, if I could go back and give my college, you know, version of myself, any advice, I would just say, don't stress about it. Just do something that you want to do, major what you want to major in, study what you want to study and doors will open for you. Just follow the door that open, like go through the door that opens and the path, your path will guide you. A hundred percent agree. So you have now spent almost eight years at Rhodes Scholar, which is a pretty long tenure, especially in this day and age. You've risen through the ranks. You've been a writer, a manager, and you're now director of public relations. What is it about Rhodes Scholar that keeps you there and keeps you finding new ways to challenge yourself? Yeah, well, I think, you know, people stay at Rhodes Scholar for a long time for their their entire careers. You you hear very often, you know, there's a lot of people on my team that have been there for 20, 30 years. Our CEO has been there for over 40 years. It was his first job out of uh, in college. He was still in college when he started oh, wow. working at Rhodes Scholar and he's the C- CEO now. So it is an organization that people stay at. And I think if you ask anybody, because people ask us this a lot when they're interviewing at Rhodes Scholar, and I almost... Everybody will say three things, the travel focus of our organization, the mission, the nonprofit mission, and the people that we work with, um, because we are travel, you know, we, we, attract people who love travel, who are passionate about travel, who believe that travel, you know, is impactful, not just for individuals, but for global society. And we uh, also attract people who are drawn by our mission, people who, you know, want to work for a nonprofit, who aren't necessarily motivated by money, who are interested in social justice, social change. That's how I would identify myself. Um, And I really feel at the end of the day, like, you know, good knowing that I'm doing something good for, for the world and for society. And so what those two things, the mission and the travel do is they attract people who care about those things. And so it just creates this company culture and this community that's so supportive and wonderful to be a part of. And so I think those three things kind of all go hand in hand. So I, I might be a lifer, like I really, and now we're fully remote too. Um, so that flexibility would be hard to give up. Um, and of course the travel perks are always nice. <laughs> yes, I can imagine. Road Scholar Trip are intended for travelers who are 50 or older. And the average age of your customer is 72, which I was really surprised to read. So this is a tricky question because I'm very close to your target demographic. Like 
very, very close. How is it marketing to this age group? How is that different than marketing to other age groups? Yeah. Well, I would say, first of all, we still send a lot of catalogs. We do a lot of print marketing, which a lot of people are phasing out of. Obviously, we're also you know, evolving as well, but we still do a lot of print. Um, I have worked mostly in my career at Road Scholar and Digital. So I have been doing our social media since I started at Road Scholar. It was sort of like, you're the youngest person on our team. You must know social media. So I didn't really have any training in that. But again, that's one of those things that people are taking classes now and in college. So I had to kind of figure out how to use social media from a marketing perspective, not just from my own personal use. So um, I would say you know, think being really intentional about technology and innovations and trends is important for older adults. Uh, You don't want to like alienate them or intimidate them or push them away. So looking for trends that they can relate to. So um, for example, I really, we're really going to be leaning into video a lot more moving forward. Video is something that, you know, Facebook algorithms like, and, you know, with TikTok and all the reels and stuff like that, video is trending in a different way. And video is a channel and a medium that doesn't, in my mind, alienate our participants and our age demographic, because it's something that they, they understand. They have experience with things like that, um, you know, with different types of video content. And so it's something that we will lead into in in the coming year. So that's something we're going to focus on next year. Um, So that's something that I would say is just being really careful, intentional about technology and the evolution into digital. Let me tell you, Gen X TikTok is happening. So (laughs) I hope you guys will start putting some Gen X travel influencers on TikTok. I cannot wait to see that. (laughs) When do you know that it's time to try a new channel like TikTok? Like, are there signals you're looking out for? Do your customers tell you, why don't I see you on TikTok or Reels or whatever? Yeah. Well, again, being really careful about what's trendy is important for sure. Um, we're, we're always paying attention, everyone at Road Scholar, to those are in our age demographic who around us, our parents and our grandparents. So you hear a lot of times people talking about, well, my mom is using this. My dad is do is using YouTube in this way or whatever. So we talk a lot about, you know, we pay, we pay more attention to those around us in our demographic, as well as going on programs. We talk to our participants when we get to get out there on our trips and we talk to them. We, we look at what devices they're using, how they're taking pictures on their cell phone, like this kind of thing. And then also we do lots of surveys. So, um, you know, we just did a survey recently. We did a couple of different surveys that um, confirmed this, that our participants are using YouTube more than they're using Instagram and far more than they're using Pinterest. We were kind of thinking about shifting gears to add more of a Pinterest strategy to our um, channels. And, you know, our survey results were resoundingly that we should focus more on YouTube. So that's definitely changed what we're going to focus on next year. That's so interesting. And I know that that is true. Um, I am so countercultural when it comes to YouTube. Like, I have no interest in watching videos on YouTube. I like TikTok because it's short and quick, but otherwise, I feel like I can read something more quickly than I can watch a video. So I'm like, uh, okay. Time. Come on, let's go. <laughs> Since Road Scholar is not for profit as an entity, how do you measure success in PR and marketing? Like a lot of organizations will tie 
that success to revenue dollars. Is that the same for you or not the same? Yeah, well, it's it's interesting because so our president has this mantra that he repeats at every single staff assembly that we have. And it's something like we have to do well to do good. So even though we're a nonprofit, we still want to be successful in our marketing, in marketing our programs as possible because it means that we get to reach more people. So we truly believe that our programs have a positive impact on all of our participants and all the people who who participate in them. And so it really just comes back to our mission again, is that everything we do is to ex- expand our reach and reach more people with our mission and with our programs. So it's not so much that we have different measures of success or different marketing strategies. It's more the difference is really in the motivation behind them. We're motivated by our mission to reach more people and n- not necessarily by our desire, you know, to make more money for stakeholders or whatever. So it's more about doing more good in the world. We like to make sure that our listeners come away from every single episode of Top Floor with some specific things they can try either in their businesses or in their personal lives. So I'm so interested in your answer to this. What are two or three things you've learned either about travel or life in general from the older adults who travel with Road Scholar? Well, I would say that they've completely changed my perspective on aging and older adults in general. Um, before I came to Road Scholar, to be honest, I didn't really think about older adults that much. I wasn't very <laughs> close. I wasn't very close to my grandparents at that point. I didn't really consider my parents older adults, even they probably were in, you know, they were in our age demographic. But um, you know, I I read studies and articles all the time about how marketers are completely ignoring older adults, especially older women, despite the fact that boomers, you know, have so much money to spend and that women are making the buying decisions, especially in when it comes to travel. So it's really forever changed my consciousness of just paying attention to this whole population of people that I probably didn't really before as, you know, a young person coming right out of college. So regardless of where I'm working, that's something that I'll always carry with me is just, you know, that consciousness of of marketing to older adults, not forgetting about them, thinking about them in the decisions that you make. Um, and also I would say that it's just really pr- changed my whole perspective on on what older people are capable of, really. Our participants are educated, lifelong learners, adventurous, independent. You know, we see 80 and 90-year-olds going on programs with us to Antarctica or going hiking on programs with us. And so I am just constantly inspired and amazed by what our participants do and what they're capable of. And so it's just given me such a different perspective of what my life and my future could look like um, as I get older. So, um, and I've really formed some incredible intergenerational friendships with a lot of the participants that I've come across that I've met on programs that I've worked with on blogs and stuff like that. So um, those are so valuable to me and something that I would never have had you know, access to if I didn't work at Road Scholar. So, oh, that's really cool. Okay, shift gears. If you had to narrow it down, what are a couple of your very best tips for improving writing skills? Okay, I would say read and write. 
which sounds really simple, but, um, you know, consume as much content as you can, especially, you know, finding whatever niche that you want to write about and becoming an expert in that niche. And so, again, consuming as much content in that specific topic as you can and just practicing, practicing, practicing writing is really what it comes down to. Um, when you get to a certain point with writing, you can't sit in a classroom and learn how to write. You just have to practice and refine and hone your skills. So I've told a lot of people who are coming out of school asking me a question like this. And I say, um, start your own blog, first first of all, for everybody who wants to be a writer um, in marketing or any kind of you know content writer, start your own blog uh, because it gives you a chance to practice. It gives you a chance to hone your skills, um, to build a content calendar, to practice with social media marketing, branding, brand awareness. There's so many skills that you can practice just by creating a brand around yourself. And finding that niche to write in. Um, and so, and it also, it tells a future employer, you know, it shows them that you're doing this on your free time because you are so passionate about it. And so that really is, you know, a good sign to a future employer of, of your passion. So I love that advice. That's what I always say. The more you read, the better a writer you will be because oh, yes. you're in, in jesting good writing. So you know what it sounds like. Mm -hmm. I would also say, especially for people who are on the earlier side of their careers, no matter if your employer will reimburse you for it or not, install Grammarly. Because that will prevent the dumb things that just make you look sloppy. Like, you know transposing two letters or using the wrong your, whatever the case may be, Grammarly. Grammarly, you should sponsor me based on the fact that mm -hmm. I recommend this to every single person that I ever talk to ever. <laughs> <laughs> we have reached the fortune telling portion of the show. So it's time for some predictions. What is a prediction you have about the future of travel? The future of travel? Well, I think, you know... Space travel, virtual reality, those are kind of further down the road. But in the shorter term, I would say sustainability is something everyone's talking about and is going to become more and more important in the short term and the long term. Um, just, you know, sustainability and travel kind of butt heads a little bit. They're working against each other. And so I think travel companies are just going to have to be thinking more creatively and innovatively about providing more sustainable travel options. And I would say my hope for the future of travel is that it will become more diverse. Um, in the next 20 to 25 years, America is going to be a majority minority country. And right now travel is still very white and very segregated. So I hope that the industry will shift to make travel more accessible and more welcoming to more people, both in terms of those who work in travel and those who do the traveling themselves. So I'd love to give a little plug to Black Travel Alliance who are doing really good. They're doing really great work in that area, but there's definitely more work that needs to be done across the whole industry. So that would be my hope for the future. We had Anita on Anita Francois on a few episodes ago. So I'll link to that one in the show notes. Perfect. If you could wave a magic wand and create a new product or a new service for the travel industry, what would it be? This is my sneaky way of getting business ideas that I can patent and then, you know, make millions. I don't know if I have a good answer for you then because I was, you know, I really want to harken back to the, you know, it's not so much a 
product or a service. But if I could wave a magic wand and have one wish of a change in travel, it would be, you know, more representation and more diversity um, as far as those who work in the travel industry, making sure that tour guides and museums are telling diverse stories and diverse histories that, you know, and those are those are changes that are not going to happen overnight. You can't just met wave a magic wand and change that it's going to take a lot of time and intention and work um unfortunately so you know road scholar is doing some of that work behind the scenes but it's definitely something that companies they have to want to see that change and so then you know it's going to take a lot of systemic change to make that happen but so it's not really a product or a service but if i could ma- wave a magic wand and change something i don't know exactly what that product or service is that would solve that problem but just focusing more on that is what I would do. Okay. Well, what is next for you and what's next for your company? Well, along with a focus on diversity and sustainability, as I kind of mentioned, we talk a lot about mobility and accessibility with travel, with our aging participants. Um, We're seeing a huge influx of solo travelers as well. Um, So we're working on providing more opportunities and support for solo travelers who travel with us. Um, And then also we developed online programs during the pandemic, um, which were developed out of necessity, but we've really seen what an amazing impact they've had on our participants who cannot travel anymore um, for whatever reason. So we're, we're having talks right now about what the future of our online programming looks like, maybe kind of spinning it off into its own sub-brand of some kind, um, just to really help us continue to reach more people and participants, people who can't travel. So that's that's kind of what's uh, what's what's ahead for us, I think. Okay, folks, before we tell Kelsey goodbye, we are going to head down to the loading dock where all of the best stories get told. Going down. Kelsey, what is a story you would only tell me on the loading dock? Well, before Road Scholar, I worked for a luxury bike tour company. And um, I started essentially as a travel agent. So I was booking hotel rooms, handling details like bike size and flight information, that kind of thing. And then I became customer service manager. So I had to deal with any issues that came up. And when you work in luxury travel... You're serving wealthy people who often have very high, sometimes unrealistic expectations. There can be some entitlements, some divas that you have to deal with. Um, That's not everyone for sure, but uh, some issues arose. So one that stands out in my memory um, is we organized a private trip for a woman and her boyfriend and her two children. And it became clear to the guides very early in the trip that she was expecting them to babysit her two kids while she and her boyfriend went off cycling together. No we way. We were not a babysitting service. Um, so we did do, you know, family trips with kids, but the families were always together with the guides. So once she realized that was not the case, she called us saying she wanted to end the trip early. Of course, she wanted her money back. And, you know, she didn't have travel insurance, which another thing I've learned in travel, always get travel insurance. Um, So, you know, we said, no, it's your choice to leave. We're not going to give you your money back. We've already spent all this money. We can't just give you your money back. So they did end up leaving early, but um, we actually uh, heard from our contacts at the hotel that they left the hotel room in complete disarray. There was pee all over the room. Like, no, I'm not just talking like the kind of pee you would expect from a child who wet the bed. It was like all over the room. Gross. And so I I don't know if I'm assuming the kids did it, but it seems like an odd thing for kids to just do and a parent 
you know, to allow, I don't know. It was very wild, but, um, yes. And I think she even tried to get, you know, get a refund through her credit card after it was, it was just like a very long ongoing thing, but that was, that was one of the craziest, grossest. That is so gross. Oh (laughs) my God. I have this vision of the boyfriend taking revenge. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. And this is luxury hotels we're talking about. Like this is, it was just wild. So yeah, some crazy people, but. (laughs) Well, Kelsey Canadler Perry, thank you so much for being here. I know that our listeners are now frantically Googling Rhodes Scholar, as am I. And I really appreciate you riding up to the top floor. Thanks so much. It was fun. Thanks so much for listening. You can find the show notes at topfloorpodcast.com forward slash episode forward slash 122. Jonathan Albano is our editor, producer, and all-around genius. He even wrote and performed our theme song with vocals by Cameron Albano. You can subscribe to Top Floor on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen. And your rating or review will go a long way in helping us give you more of what you like. Thanks for listening to the Top Floor Podcast at www.topfloorpodcast.com. Have a hospitality marketing question? Reach us at 850-404-9630 to be featured in a future episode. 